0: Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak, with me, Christian Chiller. Now, as you can probably already hear, I have a bit of a cold, or I'm getting over a cold, to be precise. See, I have to put up with uh, <laughs> that sound in my voice. But anyway, I have an interesting show. I've got my links for you. And then I have an interview with Martin Mao of Chronosphere, ex-Uber and other companies about their new... um I guess, a big data streaming analytics platform built on the open source project M3. Well, that's coming up later. Let's start with my favorite links for the week. Beginning with an article from John Fingers on Engadget, always my favorite segment of the show. In fact, maybe I should actually just make a segment because uh, it seems to be a topic that I bring up quite a lot. Old technology. It is... A couple of days ago, it was the 25th anniversary of PlayStation, the original PlayStation. Obviously, PlayStation still exists, but this is the original one. That's actually also quite amazing if you think, I don't really keep up with consoles very much, but I guess they're still up to PlayStation 4. Maybe 5 is coming soon. That's five models in 25 years, one every five years, which is pretty pretty um, slow pace of release, actually, which is also kind of interesting in its own right. But anyway, I digress. This is post dissecting the original PlayStation. I acquired one at one point, actually. Um, And I guess the first thing that strikes you in the photo is how big it all is, you know. There's a lot of surface mount technology in devices these days. It's got a CD drive, which you I don't think you have anymore in modern consoles. Again, I'm not so sure. It's got huge resistors and capacitors and just a lot of space. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you'd want to service a PlayStation, but I guess you could, and that's something that's harder to do these days with with any modern device really um so yeah if you remember the playstation i do it was pretty amazing and groundbreaking at the time and now i could probably emulate it on my iphone quite easily i guess well, i don't have an iphone video to me um and it'll look a lot better but it was groundbreaking at the time and uh yeah have a little trip down memory lane and have a look inside literally the playstation if you so desire next an article on Jen from uh, medium by Maya Kosov, This is the story of Big Calculator, how Texas Instruments monopolised math class, or maths class, however you prefer to say that. I found this interesting. I guess when I read this, I I thought this was going to be historical uh, and it would fit into my historical corner. But no, Texas Instruments graphing calculators is, I, I think, I think I had one when I studied maths. I can't quite remember. I actually stopped studying maths fairly Early on, So I don't entirely remember if I had one or not, Um, or maybe my dad had one, Uh, but that was quite some time ago. I guess I just assumed that things like graphing calculators had been replaced by apps. And yes, actually, they have. But of course, if you allow children to use phones and tablets, then there's all sorts of other distractions. So calculators, graphing calculators are still mostly preferred um, in, in many schools, especially in America, I guess, where this article is based. I don't know about the rest of the world. But despite them being pretty old technology, they haven't really changed very much in quite some time, in definitely the lifespan of some of the children that are using them. They're very expensive. Uh, And if you lose one, you have to get a new one. And in certain schools, in certain regions, kids just can't afford them. So the schools, or quite often, which is even crazier, the teachers have to buy them for their students so they can do the work. I mean, we're talking about very complicated maths here that you can't do in your head or on a normal calculator. Obviously you could on a computer, but then, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like there's better solutions to this than than uh, having a one use, very expensive uh, device and maybe uh, locked down devices, uh, Chromebooks or something like that that you could just restrict access to, I feel like is a better option. But sometimes inertia and lethargy just take hold in these sorts of situations. But... If you're fascinated to hear how, you know, a 20-something-year-old device is still uh, uh, a common requirement, well, I mean, of course, there's pencils and pens and things like that. But anyway, a a technology device, well, it's also pens and pencils. Anyway, I digress. I think you get my point, even if I'm not making it very well. Uh, If you're fascinated to hear how such an old and unchanging device is still being used by children today, and possibly many of you who are parents also used it, (laughs) then uh, read on. It's fairly long. Uh, it'd be, it's amazing to think that it's possible to write so much about the Texas Instruments Calculator. But it is, and it's quite interesting. So enjoy. Now, this is not a new post. It's another Medium post from Woot, I'm guessing he's touch. Um, about switching from macOS to Linux. And there's many posts like this. But I bring it up because I have been experimenting with this again. One of the people I work for, I discovered I was entitled to a work laptop. So I thought, here's a good opportunity to try Linux again. After hearing so many people say to me, oh, Linux just works now. Desktop Linux is much better than it used to be. You could do video editing. Many of the things that were on my checklist of necessities to switch from macOS that always held me back on Linux. People say, oh, it's better now. It's better. And after reading a couple of articles like this, it's become the kind of new cool thing to do, <laughs> switch from MagOS to Linux for certain sections of the computer-using population. I thought I'd give it another try. I'm not going to go into very much detail here, because I've actually written quite a long article, which I will publish on Design very soon. I have a few extra things to add to it from the past couple of days, um, which will detail my experiences. Shall we say, I'll give you a little hint that it wasn't all smooth sailing. But, um, yeah, I, I think I'm going to leave it there. Maybe I'll save a further discussion for next week. But if you want to do some preliminary reading around the subject, then have a read of this post. And he has a couple of follow-up posts as well. I especially found the section on alternative software quite useful. Although, interestingly, um, a lot of the software is not necessarily fully open source, which I found interesting. The concept of having proprietary software in Linux has always been a strange one to me. Um It's fine but it feels like the section of people who would want to use that would be small. Would it make it worth it? But anyway, that's for a bigger discussion. But yeah, have a read of this and then I'll be back with my take next week or in the next couple of weeks and you can hear about my experiences directly. On the subject of change and switching platforms, Tim Berners-Lee is is back. He never really went away, (laughs) but he's back with a new campaign. His uh, global plan to save the web. This was his contract for the web. It's actually been announced over the past few weeks. He's trying to encourage digital players to turn the web back to, I guess, what he always wanted it to be. Although, interestingly, a little bit of history here that not many people are necessarily aware of. I recently just finished reading The Innovators by Walter Isaacson. A very good book, actually. I really enjoyed it. I kind of could stop reading it. And in the section that covers Tim Berners-Lee and the World Wide Web... Tim Berners-Lee was actually generally in favour of keeping the web fairly restrictive and to academics. So so it's interesting that he now, uh, I, you know, people change, it's fine. He now kind of flies this flag for openness, but actually it wasn't necessarily what he intended. And the browser manufacturers from the time, like Mosaic, uh, for example, were actually the people who pushed him and the World Wide Web into being more open. But anyway, that was then, this is now. And I'm going I'm to phrase this. The contract for the web requires endorsing governments, companies, and individuals to make concrete commitments to protect the web from abuse and ensure it benefits humanity. This is all very noble, but what does it mean? And some of the people who have signed up for it are some of the companies that you could accuse of breaking it in the first place. So I'm not 100% sure um, what this is all really going to mean. I have been trying to line up an interview, actually, with uh, Tim Merzli. for some time since Web Summit a couple of years ago. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I will keep trying and maybe we can dig into some more details. But in the meantime, have a read of this article on The Guardian and have a dig around the Contract for the Web website. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. What is it? Is it is it binding? Is it just uh, grandiose grandiose statements? What do you think? You can let me know at christinchiller.com slash Contact. And another article on redesigning, redesigning things that have not changed in a long time. This is from CNN, from Jacopo Prisco. And it covers, uh, yeah, redesigning air conditioners. Air conditioners have not changed in a very long time. If the world is going to get hotter, we might need them. But ironically, they are often the cause of a lot of climate change. There's actually a statistic here. Let me just find it. 10%, which is fairly high. It's not the highest, but it's fairly high. And if you consider that not all the world really uses air conditioning, then that starts to to show it would probably be a lot higher in certain countries. So how do we make it more efficient if we're going to need it? Now, recently, there is a new coalition from the Indian government, a place that definitely needs it, and the Rocky Mountains Institute. Rocky Mountains does not sound like a place that needs air conditioning, but still. They are offering a one million competition to improve air conditioning. And this article details some of the projects. And I am super fascinated to see how this goes. I have often looked at air conditioning and think, thought, yeah, how can we make this better? We all know it's terrible for the environment and very expensive. Um, and it blows grids when we lived in, in Melbourne in summer, often peak summer when there's lots of air conditioning, you have brownouts, the power would go out all the time. So it's actually a big problem in many, many ways. So I look forward to seeing the results of this. Um, and uh, maybe in the near future, even sort of speaking to some of the people behind some of the projects and seeing what they've come up with and, and how long it will take for them to become commercially viable and on the streets, in our houses, and keeping us cool whilst the world is hot, but not heating the world up even more. And finally, very sad, little Bub, the little kitty with the sticky out tongue that made everybody very happy, has died. It's only eight, but I think she had health issues. So I guess that explains a lot. Very sad. Internet memes everywhere cried out. Uh, and the interesting thing here is a lot of the famous meme cats are all dead now. Keyboard Cat is dead. Um, grumpy Cat, I think, is dead. Little Bub is dead. They're about the only internet cats I really know, I think. But anyway, they're all gone. So who will replace them? Um, we will see. Maybe it could be our cat. It could be onto a fortune there. Anyway, spare a thought for Little Bub and his little face. Her little face, sorry. Doesn't sound like a female name, does it? But anyway. Um so shed a tear, stick out your tongue for one minute silence. I hope you enjoyed my links this week. And now I have an interview with Martin Mao of Cronsphere.
1: Enjoy. So our journey began at Uber four years ago. Uh, and what we realized at Uber as we were going through the migration in adopting Kubernetes and a cloud native architecture. So adopting like microservices and running everything on containers. Uh, we realized that none of the tooling that existed there could handle the sheer volume of uh, monitoring data being produced. So none of the tooling could even store all of the data being produced, let alone sort of do anything useful with it. Um, and as we were going through this with Uber, we sort of uh, looked around the market, couldn't find anything. And we ended up building our own solution, uh, which we actually built in open source. Uh, and that solution is called M3. Uh, and during our time at Uber, we actually managed to scale M3 up to one of the largest monitoring systems uh, in the world today. And then earlier this year, we have decided to to leave Uber uh, and build Chronosphere, uh, the company around the open source M3 technology uh, to sort of bring all the benefits that, that we sort of uh, extracted with M3 and bring that to sort of enterprises all around the world. Mm.
2: So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, monitoring stacks out there that, claim to be able to do the same thing. So what's the problems they have, or what's the limits they
1: have? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, there are definitely a lot of monitoring solutions out there that claim that they are enterprise-grade. Uh, but when you look into it, it's, it's generally a few things uh, that, that they fall short at. The first is the scale and the amount of data that they can store Uh, If you look at a lot of these solutions that are enterprise grade, they store tens of millions of metric time series. Uh, And what we found is, you know, as as you get more complex technology stacks and as you sort of move to Kubernetes, what ends up happening is you just generate a lot more time series than than you used to. Uh, And, you know, if you look at something like M3, it can actually store tens of billions of time series. So it's actually not even just an order of magnitude, but it's multiple orders of magnitude more uh, in storage, uh, which is great. Uh, and then the two other things that that really did differentiate it is um, with a scalable solution. That's 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 really nice, but it needs to scale in a cost-efficient way. So it mm-hmm. can't just scale. Uh, in, in, a, in a linear fashion in terms of cost, but we really made sure that as we scaled up the system in terms of storage, uh, we scaled up the cost sublinearly. so you're not paying as much for the same amount of storage. Uh, and then finally, the, the big differentiator for enterprise is reliability. Hmm. So if you look at a lot of these other sort of solutions that are out there, they run on a single region in a single cloud provider. Uh, and because of that, they can't really provide um, high levels of reliability. Uh, and that's one thing that sort of um, plagued our system at Uber many years ago. So what we ended up building, uh, especially with Chronosphere, is a solution that runs across multiple regions in multiple cloud providers so that you get the highest level of reliability for your monitor. I
2: would, would it be fair to say that you're starting to get into maybe the the, the levels of technology and infrastructure that many might reserve for their main application <laughs> more than just 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 their
1: their um monitoring stacks. For sure, for sure. Um, so yeah, I think if you if you look at what we used the underlying technology for and what a lot of companies use it for today, they're monitoring not just all of their infrastructure uh, and, and their applications, but they actually quickly use the tool to monitor their business as well. Um, so, so the use cases definitely sort of expand uh, across the whole business.
2: Okay, so let's let's get into M3 first and kind of go mm-hmm. up go up the layers. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it's open source, so we can go into some detail. Um, for sure. What, what did you do to, to make it so much more uh, optimized for, for this large-scale use case?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So when we first designed uh, the first monitoring solution at Uber, uh, before M3, we sort of used off-the-shelf uh, open-source technology for both our storage uh, and our metric index as well. So we're using technologies like Cassandra and Elasticsearch uh, and what we found is that those technologies are just not um, purely tailor-made for for the time series use case, right? Cassandra is a key value store uh, and Elasticsearch uh, is, is like a search engine. Um, but what what we ended up doing is beyond a certain level of scale and when you need a certain level of, of performance and cost efficiency, you really need to build everything from scratch. So the first thing we did with M3 was to build a completely new uh, time series database uh, as our underlying storage engine. Uh, And and that is uh, built um, completely from scratch. It's not built on top of any other sort of existing storage technology. Uh, And then on top of that, we sort of then layer on uh, an ingestion pipeline that's highly reliable uh, and can do things like metric aggregation in a streaming fashion. Uh, And then also a scalable query engine as well, because, you know, storing billions of time series is great. um, But once you have it stored, you want to be able to query billions of time series. So all of those pieces of technology, we just found that at the scale that we were operating at uh, and and the performance that we required, um, nothing out there really solved that solution. So we really had to build everything custom from the ground up for this one particular use case. Mm. And as far as I can tell you, just focus on,
2: the ingestion and the storage, and kind of hand off the 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 other stuff to, to other applications
1: like Prometheus, for example. Uh, yeah, that's 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 sort of correct. Okay. Um, so so de- definitely, sorry. So so definitely, um, it, it does the ingestion, the storage, and the query engine for sure. We in the open source solution, mm. we actually don't provide any of the visualizations yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or or the alerting or the tooling there. Uh, in, In terms of Prometheus, we do plug and play with Prometheus. So people who are running Prometheus today, um, because, you know, Prometheus is great and it's the thing. That everyone gets started with, but it doesn't solve, it's not, it's, it runs on a single binary. So it doesn't really solve the scalable, uh, high reliability in nature of your monitoring solution. So um, M3 in in, in in open source actually plays really nicely with Prometheus uh, in the sense that it's the long-term storage uh, for your Prometheus endpoints, which is great. Um, but yes, in, in open source, you definitely have to sort of piece it together. And that's what we're doing differently with Chronosphere is that we didn't just want people to have to piece things together, we wanted to both host everything for everybody so that we could run the complex M3 stack, but also provide the visualizations and the alerting tooling and the analytics tooling on top uh, in, in a all-in-one product. Okay.
2: And how long did it take you to build? I mean, I've known some companies that have been trying to build something like this for years. So,
1: <laughs> so- sure. Yes. Uh, it definitely took us years to build. Okay, so we yeah. started the project in open source uh, April 2016, and, okay. and we're still actively chipping away at a, in, in open source and adding features every day. So uh, it took more than three and a half years uh, to get to where it is today, uh, and that was um, developed by a team of 20 senior engineers. All so right. it was definitely okay. a he- heavy investment in the program. Okay.
2: So let's move up the the stack to Chronosphere. What What is Chronosphere beyond, I'm guessing, M3 as a service, like I'm guessing
1: you add more than that. So what do you add add on top? For sure. So what Chronosphere does is first it starts with M3 and actually we add a whole bunch of proprietary features that are not there. Uh, And all of these features are tailored around the enterprise use case. So with open source M3, uh, you you can actually scale a single deployment of that uh, up to billions of time series. That is possible. Uh, But when you look at an enterprise, what you really want is sort of multi-tenancy controls that sort of map to your organizational structure. So you want uh, teams to be able to sort of uh, emit metrics that other teams cannot see. Uh, You want teams to have sort of resource allocation so that one does not step on the toes of another team and take the whole system down. Uh, And you you also sort of want security and access controls as well. So all of those type of features are just not bundled with the open source M3 solution today. And that's the first thing that we we layer on top of that with, with Chronosphere. Uh and then the layer above that is what I mentioned earlier with the visualizations, uh, the the alerting engine uh and the analytics tooling. So tooling that let you leverage the amount of data that you're storing now, uh all of that is also not available in the open source M3 solution. You sort of have to piece that together yourself. Um so, so that is something we provide. And then finally we run the whole thing, we we manage the whole thing, uh and but we run that across multiple cloud providers for you so that you know you get the highest level of reliability without having to worry about how how you're going to sort of structure that and and take care of all of the underlying infrastructure for that. And
2: I mean when we met Anish very briefly at uh, velocity one of your colleagues started to show me a visualization uh, yep. as as much as is possible with with no visuals. <laughs> mm-hmm. Could you maybe just talk through how that works and what you what those visualizations would be useful for? in comparison to, I guess, other types of visualizations that other people might have
1: used? Yeah, for sure. So um, first and foremost, we provide sort of, you know, the the bare bone essentials of a monitoring system where you can sort of create dashboards and graphs and start graphing your metric in your time series data. Hmm. Uh, And then we have an alerting engine that lets you set threshold-based alerts uh, on top of that data so you can be notified and that, that alerting engine sort of you know ties into the standard notification engines like PagerDuty and can send emails and things like that. So that's the sort of basic solution uh, that, that we have and that, that people can do. But uh, what we realized through our time at Uber is that the amount of data actually grows uh, at a much faster pace than the amount of engineers uh, you hire to use this tool. Uh, so what we ended up having to do is to automate a lot of that. So if you look at our platform today, uh, while you can create custom dashboards, what happens is when you deploy our our agent and our agent runs on Kubernetes as a daemon set, so there's like a one-click deployment, it automatically discovers all the metric endpoints to scrape and ingest metrics from. Uh, And then once it's starting to ingest them, it actually automatically recognizes a lot of those metrics because a lot of the systems you're monitoring are very well known. So if you're monitoring like an Elasticsearch cluster or a MySQL instance, it's it's actually fairly well known what those metrics are going to look like already. And then based on that, we actually go and generate you all of your your dashboards for those pieces of technology automatically, uh, and also the alerts for those as well. So you know, as soon as you log into the system, once you've deployed the agent, you have a lot of your dashboards pre-generated and ready to go, so you don't have to configure anything manually. So you sort of get monitoring out of the box for free. Uh, And then the final thing on top of that is with the alerting engine, uh, we also have anomaly detection running in the background. Uh, Because the thing is, it's actually also, it's not just quite hard to define what your alert should be, it's actually very hard to define what the threshold should be because that threshold changes over time, depending on the load of your system, depending on the time of day, depending on, you know, the time of year, uh, you know, like for for Black Friday, for a lot of e-commerce stores, Mm -hmm. they get a lot more traffic than they would on a normal day. So uh, what our anomaly detection sort of system does is automatically generate the alert thresholds for you based on week on week or year on year analysis. So it can sort of predict um, what sort of uh, expected traffic loads are like, and it will set the thresholds according to that so the whole system is sort of while it provides the basic um building blocks so you could do everything custom yourself uh what we really want to do is to automate as much of that as possible and just get you a working experience um straight out of the box Mm.
2: and i'm guessing with that automation you mentioned that sometimes teams are discovering metric endpoints that maybe they didn't even realize were there
1: for sure, for sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's that definitely have, happens a lot. And, you know, we definitely give controls to teams such that, you know, not only can they control which sources uh, they want to ingest the metrics from, but also for each individual source, they can actually control uh, both the retention period and the resolution. So you can imagine that, you know, a team has, uh, expose some metrics that are heavily used for debugging. And you might not want to keep those around for years because you're going to be paying expensive storage costs for those. So uh, we'll, we actually give a lot of controls on on defining not only what gets ingested, but uh, at what sort of level of detail do they get ingested in and for how long you want to retain that data for as well. Hmm. So let's
2: let's actually go to some of the, the, the business side a little bit. Um, the company, as far as I can tell, has not existed for very long. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> and yet that, you managed to raise 11 million Series A, which is, which is a fair bit for, for, uh, especially for a tech focused company. Whilst yeah, I, no. I don't, I, I'm not going to ask you like how, uh, because personally <laughs> I, I, it's not really what I talk about. And secondly, you probably don't want to tell me. But I guess to, to raise that sort of, uh, fund so early, um, I'm guessing, I mean, first, the technology is is proven. You've you've sort of already used it in a very large, well-known company. But Mm -hmm. what were some of the use cases that the the funders saw would be very valid for particular businesses, especially that, that made them kind of invest such a large sum at such an early stage?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so as you said, uh, you know, we we had a, a sort of a boosted start where we already built this, uh, the core underlying storage engine and, and everything in open source. So we could sort of build a business. Uh, on top of that, so it was much faster for us to sort of uh, get to market with an end-to-end product uh, than if we had to build the whole thing from scratch. Uh, but a lot of the investors, when we started talking, I think they uh, came to the realization um, that this migration to to Kubernetes and cloud native is well underway for enterprises. And they came to the realization that a lot of the existing tooling out there today uh, isn't really built for this sort of new generation of, of use cases. Uh, and you know, talking to a lot of the existing customers of these other solutions, um, they hear the pain points and those are the exact pain points that we are sort of trying to tackle, which is you know, a lot of these solutions are very expensive as you get to large scale uh, and they're highly unreliable. So those are the sort of exact things that we are aiming towards and those are the, the sort of design principles that we have had when we built M3 uh, from the beginning. So there was definitely a lot of alignment there. Uh, and I feel like the the size of the funding was also because we we're just much closer to getting a product mm. to market. So it wasn't, it was less about building the product and finding the fit. We actually had a large pool of open source users even of our solution out there in the world uh that wanted a little bit more than what we just had in in open source so Mm. it was it was um less of a exploratory phase for us and more of a execution and just getting the product out to market Um, and, and i think that was the reasoning behind the large round of funding and and without divulging who you
2: may or may not be speaking to um what are some of the the common use cases or business sectors so far that have shown interest
1: yeah, we've actually, uh, I've, I've actually tried to do the analysis to see if there's a particular uh, sector or segment that, that you know, um, heavily rely on this. And actually, it, it turns out it's it's, it's quite spread uh, across all the sectors. So, um, you know, without going to sort of uh, particular names, we see, you know, companies uh, in, in, in the finance sector, we see companies in e-commerce, we see companies uh, in, in more traditional, um, uh, retail, uh, we see companies, uh, definitely heavily in the tech sector as well. So Mm -hmm. it's actually like a monitoring and because what you can use the underlying solution for, which is not just monitoring your infrastructure and your applications. And, you know, if you look at a lot of businesses these days, there's definitely a huge portion of technology and they, you know, that, that is a huge part of most enterprises these days. Um, but outside of monitoring that, you can also use the tool to monitor your business, right? Mm So Uber was using it to actually monitor all of their products across all of their cities. Uh, and, and that would actually go and notify you know, uh, operations people, not just engineers, but operations people on the ground to let them know when something is wrong with a particular product in a particular city. So I think if you look at those use cases, uh, that can be reapplied across pretty much all, all segments of the market. And that's what we're really finding uh, with at least our open source tooling and also our, our paid product. As well as that, we sort of get companies from all walks of life uh, leveraging this technology.
2: Can you dig into a little bit more about what you mean by monitor your business? Do you mean um, from an operations side? Yeah. Or, okay. All right. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah great question. It's, it's, it's mostly heavily on the operations side. Uh, we, we purposely uh, do not, because t- it's still an engineering tool. Yep. Um, so, you know, we purposely do not tell, well, we purposely tell companies to not rely on it for, you know, strict accounting purposes mm-hmm. uh, and whatnot, although you can definitely use it to get a real time snapshot view of things like that. Um, and, and that was definitely a, a previous use case and a, a, and a current use case. Um, but we just sort of uh, tell companies to use it as a real time monitoring and a, a real time signal of things as opposed to like the source of truth for their you know the their actual um revenue or you know um sort of fi- financial base use cases mm-hmm. and i guess across m3 and chronosphere bearing
2: in mind chronosphere is pretty pretty new what's mm-hmm. the sort of rough it's always hard to tell with open source projects but what would you say the kind of rough installation
1: base is at the moment Uh, Yeah. Great question. Um, So installation-based, we we actually don't have exact numbers on that. We don't have like a phone home feature or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But but I think if you look at, you know, we're we're gauging based off things like GitHub stars is like more than 2,400 of those. Uh, And I think just based on the sort of community meetings we have, uh, there's definitely, I would say, hundreds of customers or like hundreds of, of, sorry, not hundreds of customers, hundreds of open source uh, users out there. Uh, of the technology. But I think if you look at something like M3, um, it's going to be less pervasive than something like Prometheus because it's not the tool that you start off with, right? It's the tool that you need once you get beyond a certain level of scale. And I think, you know, in in that particular um, segment of the market, uh, there's definitely a lot higher pervasive use uh, than across the the broader sort of SMB um, market per se. Um, so, you know, some stats that we know we have, uh, it's, it's running in production today in like 15 of the Forbes 2000, uh, for example, that we know of. Uh, and then, um, you know, if you go onto the GitHub page and look at some of the, the the, the star gazers, I guess, the people who have started the project, um, you'll see that a lot of the companies that they work at are, are these large uh, in- enterprises for sure. Um, but we don't have uh, exact validation on on the exact number of installs because we don't really do a phone home feature or anything like that. We don't really like yeah, when yeah, open source yeah. technology uh, does things like that. Uh, and then in terms of the paid product, you know, we're in private beta right now uh and we are um onboarding a handful we we've already onboarded a handful of of these customers and we'll be looking to sort of expand that um at a much more aggressive rate early next year
2: uh it's actually a little bit of a tangential question but i was just yeah clicking around the the m3 getting started guides and came across um so aside from judge, is a small part of what I do because tech journalism is, you know, it's, it's not the most, it's fun, but it's not necessarily the most lucrative of, of jobs. Um I actually mostly do a lot of uh, technical documentation work. I just came across a post in your own, uh, in the M3 docs, not written by you, written by someone from Uber Open Source by the looks of it, uh, which I've never seen before in an open source project. on Tips for writing documentation. And actually a lot of them I would echo 16 tips that, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying you, you have kind of any input or opinion on this, but, um, is sort of usability and understandability of software always something that's been important to, to you and the co-founder and I guess other people involved with the project?
1: For sure. For sure. And in fact, if you look at the documentation, I mean, we have documentation there, but we actually uh, don't love it as much. We don't think (laughs) it is quite a level. Uh, It definitely needs to get to. Um, so, So I think there's been a couple of reasons for that. While we were inside Uber, we were sort of mostly focused on building the thing. Uh, and while we had a lot of outside interest, uh, it's been much easier for us to sort of hold community meetings and like talk to companies face to face just because the, the underlying pieces as we were building in the years past were changing so quickly that the documentation would be outdated, um, very quickly. So people would go read documentation that's not really reflective of, of the state of the world, I guess. Um, but, uh, now that we're part of Chronosphere, we definitely want to invest heavily in, you know, our team inside Uber didn't really have a dedicated dev advocate writing documentation or anything like that so you know, now that we have found a chronosphere we've actually just hired our first dev advocates because we definitely want to put a lot more effort uh into into documentation and and supporting the community for sure
2: good good to hear
1: <laughs> is- yeah, yeah. yeah the, the documentation is a bit raw because i think <laughs> also with, with something like this again it's not something like prometheus we can sort of pick it up and get started yeah. there's like large complex systems you're running so we sort of assume an underlying level of yeah knowledge and, yeah you know, that that's a whole other conversation around that
2: kind of thing but yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right let, let's wrap up with um obviously things are pretty new pretty fresh so i guess everything is is in flux and in plan but sort of yeah. most significantly what's on the roadmap for the next six months or so
1: Yeah, great question. So I think for the next six months, um, you know, there's there's some features we want to build back into the open source M3 community. So, you know, even though we we have the paid product with Chronosphere and that's Part of our concentration, we definitely want to upstream a lot of changes back into open source M3. So there's going to be a lot of performance and and sort of additional um, reliability and like um, things like backup and and features like that that we want to push back upstream uh, for the for the larger community. Uh, and then in terms of Chronosphere, we're sort of looking at Chronosphere as you know a tool that you want to use to solve a particular use case. And this use case is to get alerted when something goes wrong and sort of um, get to a point where you can figure out. The root cause and remediate the issue. So, if you look at our, our roadmap, there, um, you know, we've just added tracing integration mm-hmm. as as a feature. Uh, to our product a couple of weeks ago, and you know, it's not like we are trying to sort of be a one-stop shop for observability and offer a like end-to-end tracing product. But what wh- where we see tracing come in is, you know, once you do get alerted based on your metrics, you want to find additional details and and context uh, on on what's going on, and that's what tracing is great for. So we sort of added that integration in a way that it's deeply integrated. So you use the same client to emit both your metrics and your mm-hmm. traces uh, through through Open Telemetry. Uh, And then that's actually stored and and deeply linked in the dashboard. So you can go straight from a metric data point to one of the traces that, that, Underpin uh, that data point. So, I think if you look at our roadmap, we're going to continue to go down this path of like, what else can we do to optimize that particular use case? Of you want to set up some monitoring, get alerted, and remediate your issue as soon as possible. Mm. So that's what's driving a lot of the feature development uh, for a hosted product. Uh, and then, yeah, as as I mentioned earlier, we're sort of upstreaming a lot of changes back into the open source community as well.
2: And I mean, we're getting to the end of the year now, and you've just come out of thanksgiving and stuff like that too but um are there any uh, events on the horizon or even local meetups and stuff where people can um come and take a look at what you're doing
1: yeah great question so we've actually uh so, so i think the the sort of um the conference season has, has just ended yeah. uh <laughs> it was uh, quite quite busy um but yeah we started looking at our conference schedule for next year already and we've we've identified uh quite, quite a few so in q1 uh you know we'll be attending uh fosdom oh, europe brilliant. which yep. is it's, uh, it's an open source yeah business. no i i, I should um, be there
2: i pretty much go every year so yeah Cool.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I actually really like yeah. that. And you know, there's no like, you know, we're not going to get a booth nope. there or anything like that. <laughs> it's hard to get a talk and, and uh, just, just have a meetup for people using M3 and whatnot. Um, so that's one we love every year. Uh, we will be doing KubeCon EU uh, towards the end of Q1 next year. And then we're, we're also going to be partaking in, in DevOps days as well because mm-hmm. Those look like much more uh, city-local type of meetups. Um, So we'll definitely probably be looking to do the one uh, in New York, which is in Q1. Uh, And then also I believe they are in uh, Seattle later in the year as well. So where we have engineers uh, and, you know, we have four offices spread around the world. So wherever we have engineers, we'll be sort of trying to partake in those and some local meetups and whatnot as well. That was my interview with Martin Mao of
0: Chronosphere. Hope you enjoyed that. Next week is my final event for the year. I'll be at DevRelCon in London. If you are in that part of the world, come say hi. I'd love to meet you. And then I'm taking a bit of a break until the new year when I think I'm going to be at CES and South by Southwest. So big trips coming up. Actually, it's not very long away. It's only next month, isn't it? But anyway, it's next year. It always seems like such a long time away. Um, in the meantime, you can find some of my writing on com slash writing and more things there. Uh, I am going to be releasing a few new things over the Christmas break for you to enjoy, actually. I've got some new articles in progress that are nearly done as well, so more there. And write-ups from the various conferences I have been at the past few weeks, which were data natives. Uh, I actually had some quite interesting stuff there. I need to sort of dilute it all. Dilute it all? No, I need to digest it all and and summarize it. I'm hoping to actually do an interview with the conference's founder too. I did a workshop on removing bias from artificial intelligence machine learning data sets, which is super fascinating, which I will get into more soon as well. And then um, I went to 5G technology. Again, we learned more about 5G stuff. Then I got kind of sick, so it was a bit muted. But I have some interviews and things from there to get out to you as well. So more to come in the next few weeks before the end of the year. If you have enjoyed the show, please rate, review, share. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, thank you very much for listening.